Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Toyota Brookhaven services all makes and models. That could be why we were voted best service department the past two years. Come see why. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. It is a Tuesday in the week prior to Christmas. Less than one week away now, Rhino, and the markets are having a bit of a Santa Claus rally, as it is termed. The Dow up to 193 points. The NASDAQ up 75. However, you always got to have a Grinch in there, you know. <laughs> and there is a, an economist, a U.S. economist, who says he thinks we're looking for the biggest crash of our lifetime. Economist Harry Dent. He says it's an everything bubble and it's, and it's going to burst in the new year. Well, you know what I've told you. On the other hand, <laughs> got to have two hands to be an economist. And so the market's already baking in rate cuts as expected based on the latest uh, communication from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. That was just last week when those, uh, those zany Fed presidents emerged from their meeting, their monthly meeting, to say we're keeping rates just where they are. And in fact, we see in our crystal ball rate cuts in the future. Now, here's what's going to happen politically, because there's always a political dimension to this. You're going to have the president taking victory laps while he's in office. Look what we did. We cut those rates for you. And then you're going to have the folks on the right saying they only did it to help the president. (laughs) Honestly, Neither is true in my view. I do believe that in general, historically at least, Fed governors and the chairman of the Fed, they've tried to be somewhat benign in terms of rate adjustment activity during an election year, so as not to sort of put their thumb on the election and influence in any way. Right. Uh, I don't know if that's the case here, and I think that's just because they've already been clicking that interest rate meter upward quite a lot, 11 times to be exact, over the last uh, year and a half, 18 months. And just based on economic outlook and, and lots of guidance from the private sector, that things don't look all that great just looking out in the crystal ball. 
Uh, and it's just hard to, hard to understand, I guess, where all that's going. Will the market optimism last? I don't know. Hard to tell. But that's why they're buyers and sellers. And while we're sitting here, just when I started talking, it's up 20 points. Now it is it's crossed the 200 mark, the Dow up 200. But enjoy it while you can. You reported yesterday that Apple can't sell their watches. We had someone on our text line say, thanks for telling me. I just went out and bought them while I can as gifts, as planned. Yeah, I want to say it's the 21st is the date you can't buy it on the store online. Yeah. And the 24th is the last day you can purchase them in store. Okay. All All because of a patent dispute over their blood oxygen sensor. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? Um, are we going to have a white Christmas based on the forecast? And how often has that happened? It has happened before in the state of Mississippi. The city of Jackson specifically has seen snow on Christmas Day at least five times, or a few times, I should say. It's actually three. 1855, 1929, and 1963. I suspect a lot of folks weren't around that are listening. And then some of us were. Uh, I didn't make the 1855 or 1929 mark, but I was above ground in 1963. Can't say I remember. Snow a little young. And then we had freezing rain in 1998. I do remember that. It seems like that wreaked a little havoc on the power infrastructure, as that typically does, as you know. It feels like that that the power companies have gotten better working with cities and counties and so forth in trimming the trees around the power lines. Wouldn't you say you see that? Oh, yeah. Pay more attention to that. And I guess that's after being burned a few times over the last couple of decades. Maintenance is always cheaper than repairs. No doubt about it. Not to mention just the the inconvenience and the hassle and all the the uh, screaming from those who don't have power, understandably so. So what do we think about um, having snow? Meteorologists in the local area say 0% chance. Zero. Now, don't forget we are well, Considering the forecast as we speak, yeah. for the capital city at least, yep. on Monday... 50% chance of precipitation, mm. but the temperature is not going to cooperate for a white Christmas because the low will be 58. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a little more uh, spring-like kind of. Even if you go to the north, like, say, in uh, in Tupelo. Okay. Monday, Christmas, 60% chance of precipitation. Ah. Low, 54. Okay. So little, little, little plain old wet stuff. In moderate temperatures. All right. Not quite shorts and flip-flops Christmas, but definitely not a white Christmas. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking you're a guy that could break them out on Christmas Day. Oh, yeah. I've been known to. <laughs> there, may, there might even be a family picture, because Mom one year got everybody these red and black buffalo plaid shirts. That's awesome. So we could have a matching picture. And the picture was from, like, the waist up because I'm wearing shorts and flip-flops standing outside because it's hot to be wearing buffalo plaid at 60 degrees. I can dig it. I tell you who ain't getting dug, and that's the president. His job approval has fallen to an all-time low of 34%. 
I got asked by a news outlet yesterday to comment on how I thought the abortion issue may affect the 2024 election cycle. Of course, as you know, we're going to elect the president. Every member of the House of Representatives, that's the way it works, comes around every two years. And then, of course, in the Senate, I think there are 31 seats up for election. Some of those are are uh, certainly subject to changing party in terms of whoever gets elected there. Well, I got asked if how I thought the abortion issue would affect the outcome. And while I thought it had a kind of a minor effect in 22, I don't think it has much of an effect in 24. And here's why. I think people are way more concerned about economic conditions, their household financial situation, and the border. This border thing is insane. Let's just be honest. You've probably seen some video floating around taken by people at the border, just random people. I'm not talking about news, media, because they won't go. Except for Fox, honestly. They're the only people. I haven't seen the other big news outlets make any attempt. I've seen no attempt on the part of the president or the border czar, Vice President Kamala Harris. I certainly hope I pronounced it correctly, because, you know, they're sensitive about that. You can get canceled for not pronouncing her name correctly. They're no interest. And you look at the images yesterday, I think we had another record a number of crossings, over 12,000. Again, just last week, I thought we set a record. I think that was exceeded yesterday. This is crazy. But here's what I notice. Supposedly, we welcome those under our laws who are seeking true, legitimate, genuine asylum because they are at risk of harm in their home country by their government. They are oppressed. They fear for their lives. And we give them I think them it a even soap. applies if it's non-governmental violence. Okay. Like cartel or gangs okay. or something that, that's not necessarily officially in charge, but has taken control of communities or areas. Okay. But normally I'd say, but I hear you, you would think that it's a government that's just being mean <laughs> and hostile to certain people, and they're trying to escape that. But when you look at these images, I don't know that there is a certain look one would have, you know, if they're truly oppressed. They don't look it to me. I mean, they look well-kept, well-clothed, well-fed. I don't think that's it. I think it's because Joe Biden has said, hey, come on in. Enjoy the amenities. Enjoy the benefits of America. Don't worry about it. The American taxpayers are paying for it. They want you here. He's extended an invitation, essentially. It's insidious. We're stepping aside for a break. We're coming right back. We got Wendy Bailey coming on the program, the director of Mississippi Department of Mental Health at 1105. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Jeff the Great, Jose Feliciano. You didn't select that song because of the border, did you, by chance? Maybe. <laughs> oh, gosh, I tell you. It, it is ridiculous. And, and so I, I sent some statements to this news outlet on my thoughts. And, and I think that economic issues and the border top the concerns of America's voters and and I'm certainly not discounting with respect to Joe Biden uh, concern about his just ability to serve another term. I mean, it just looks like he's kind of limping through the remainder of this term. He, um, he just doesn't uh, – seems like he's declined, I would say. And that's expected at this age. It's not disrespectful. It's just reality. And uh, former President Donald Trump is, I think, capitalizing on that, going to holding these rallies where he's making that point that the current president's really not fit to lead the nation through another four years. I, I still have a hard time believing at this point he's ultimately the nominee. I think the Democrats right now are scheming, they're planning, they're plotting a way to come up with a, a new candidate. Now, let's be honest. It ain't easy to dislodge an incumbent president that says, I'm running again. That's a pretty hard task. It's got to be handled in a way, and of course the party's more concerned about the party then they are the person. So it's not that it's got to be handled in such a way that it, that it doesn't, uh, I guess, cause problems for the president, the person. I think they're searching for a way to make that adjustment and not harm the party's chances with whomever they nominate to prevail. That's, that's what their objective is at this point. We certainly shall see. I did get a question that came in um, in the last hour that was passed on, and it was where can we find out the total amount distributed for PERS in the 13th check, most recent data available. That cost of living adjustment goes out annually in December. And what I can say, that steps from Tim in Oxford, is that uh, I have already put a question in uh, to my contact at PERS, who's been very accommodating and very cooperative in, in fielding my questions and providing information. Much of that served as input for the article that I wrote uh, a month or so ago. So we'll get that data, but, and I'm not sure if they are prepared to release it just yet. May, may still have some, uh, some fluctuation there. But uh, I, I don't expect it to be a whole lot greater than it was last year. And I'll pull up all the various financial data uh, during the break next that shows the amount that was paid in the service retirement. That's the base retirement and then the cost of living adjustment. I'll pull that up and, and share that. But appreciate the question also on the ceasefire tax line last time. In Saltillo, Mississippi, it snowed on Christmas, was 2010, according to William and Tupelo. Appreciate that. 
So it's going to be muggy, humid Christmas Eve and Christmas. That's what it's kind of setting up. I don't know that I would be. call 50 to 60 muggy. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, and it usually has to get a little warmer, I would say, for it to kind of approach the muggy state. But I, I definitely know what uh, is being referred to there. You, you've seen situations where it's not raining, but yet the concrete's wet, for example. The You'll damp. see the surface is damp. Yeah, exactly. I moved to Gulfport in the summer of 84. We got snow that winter, says Delta Danny. I do kind of remember that. It was a very odd situation. What an, an anomaly that is, snow in Gulfport. Didn't it also maybe, Danny, um, touch New Orleans, it seems like? Got some flurries? Chris from Oxford, I just saw, thought about something. I know we're in the middle of the pandemic, but I don't remember them doing the census in 2020. Oh, yeah. Census happened. Um, I certainly responded electronically to that. It happened there, Chris. Let's see here. And the migrants have smartphones, says Robert and Clinton. Yeah, they are enjoying... Again, uh, many of the benefits of crossing into the country. And, and again, it's not like this isn't being communicated back to their buddies back home. Hey, come to America. We get phones and, and all the largesse of this country. It, you know the same one the Democrats say is evil and wicked and hostile. And it, some have even suggested it shouldn't exist. We should just completely obliterate our borders altogether, just let it be a free-for-all, and that we just shouldn't even exist as a sovereign nation. That's even being discussed. Ted Cruz talked about that in his latest podcast. Uh, this is insane, but it, I think, is, to a great extent, a, um, a view of a lot of radical leftists in this country, and that is a concern. Speaking of radical leftists, <laughs> you know, the president constantly lectures and admonishes the most successful in society of not paying their fair share. Over and over, he proclaims that. Well, we already know about his son, who skipped out on over a million dollars of taxes and is facing the music there in California where he's being sued, that's his home, that's why, federal court. Well, now his daughter, it appears, owes taxes, thousands, according to a newly revealed document. What's up with these Bidens? Is that kind of their deal? Taxes for thee, but not for me? Sure seems. It's a problem in the whole dang family. How could you stand in front of the country there, Mr. President? and say a word to anybody else about paying taxes. Ridiculous. She's 42, is Ashley Biden. She owes $4,985 in personal income tax, according to the document, from the Pennsylvania Department of Revenue. This isn't some off-the-wall, obscure news source, by the way. Pennsylvania Department of Revenue. A notice was sent to Ms. Biden on December the 1st, and this was obtained through a, a records request from the nonprofit Marco Polo organization. This is, um, so they're just saying, well, they're just being careless. No, they're not. They think they're above it. They absolutely do. 
This doesn't apply to me. It's no different than the pay-to-play scheme. Biden, this is what I don't think is, has been said a lot, but I, I, I have come to this conclusion. This guy's in love with money. He's just not down for earning it legitimately. He just thinks he's entitled to it. And, of course, that concept of entitlement is a core Democrat principle, is it not? I think it is. By the way, if you can find the, um, the breaking, breaking news music when you get a second, I have some breaking news. There we go. <laughs> There you go. Okay, I got it. <laughs> There's Brian Williams doing the wrong math. <laughs> oh, who could ever forget that? That was one of the biggest blunders ever on national television when he <laughs> he added about three zeros, did he not, to the amount of uh, Bloomberg as his um, his funding of his presidential campaign. Oh, he could just give a million dollars to everybody in the country. Oh, you added a few zeros there, Brian. <laughs> well, uh, we got a break on us, so you'll have to wait till after the break. I've got breaking news, and it is a declaration here on Middays. <laughs> We're stepping aside right now. We're in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. But right now, Mom, it's Christmas Eve, so make them happy, happy, cause Santa Claus wants some loving. Do you hear me? Santa Claus wants some loving. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. It's gonna be a catfish Christmas. Santa's on the lake. He's dreading his whip ball fishing pole and a John boat for his sleigh. With a red life jacket and a tackle box. Bringing his eyes just filled to the top It's gonna be a catfish Christmas Reeling in the holiday Welcome back everyone, it is Middays and we are live in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Okay, well... The big, uh, the big news is I am officially renaming the acronym DEI, which, of course, popularly, I guess, stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. It has swept the nation. Every corner of society has put lots of money into 
forming these DEI organizations, sprawling, mind you, in some entities. Well, in light of the mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu's bit of a faux pas, you could call it, last week. That's been kind. Folks, if you haven't heard, the mayor, Wu, there, decided to have a separate holiday gathering just for what her invitation was sent to, or, or should say described as, electeds of color. There are 14 or either 13 or 14 on the city council there in Boston. I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, seven of color and six not. I could have those numbers reversed. It doesn't matter. She wanted to have a get-together just for the colored members of the city council that her communications director calls electeds of color. I say the communications director because an email was sent from the communications director, of course, on instruction from the mayor. Let's have an event just for those on the council who are colored, thus excluding the others, the white members. They just don't see any problem with this segregation. I thought the whole intent of DEI was to include, unite, assimilate. I don't think so. So it's almost I'm, like they're full of it. <laughs> I'm here by renaming the acronym today, and this is henceforth what DEI should be known as on middays. Discrimination, exclusion, and inequity. Because that's what it achieves. That's what's going on with this ridiculous affirmative action and admissions at these august Ivy League institutions. That's what we see happening on the Hill when three such University leaders went to testify about anti-Semitism on their campus and refused to acknowledge or declare that, yeah, those kinds of, not just mere words, but activities, defacing assets on campus, harassing Jewish students, obstructing their movements, etc., No, those don't violate our code of conduct. Yet I guarantee you, if you refer to someone by their wrong pronoun, you'd be hauled in before some prosecuting board. I feel certain of that. You would be shamed. You might even be expelled. At a minimum, you'd receive a massive amount of wrath. But you can run around talking about genocide, and you're good to go, because it's not on people of color. It's such a double standard. So I'm hereby renaming the acronym Discrimination, Exclusion, and Inequity. 
It's giving more grade points in scoring exams to certain people based on their personal profile. It's hiring people on that basis, promoting them. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how this is affecting air traffic control. Edicts from the White House. You will go hire more controllers of color. I don't care if they're qualified or not. What the heck is that achieving? Exclusion? Because the more qualified candidates are being excluded, regardless of what their physical characteristics are. Inequity? Discrimination? All the above. It's crazy. And that's what it is. So that's what we're doing. We're renaming it right here on Middays. Maybe some folks will get the message. I am pleased to report, you saw this, Rhino, that the state of Oklahoma just passed legislation that disallows taxpayer money to be used to fund DEI departments in the state's public universities. I think that's the right move. What does it achieve? Nobody can tell you. Forcing people into jobs? Uh, forcing admission? Grading? All the above. That's not achieving anything. It's making it worse. Did you see, by the way, that a transgender athlete, high school, trying to think of the college, just received the first D1 scholarship to play on the girls' team at this college. Transgender. So, again, think about how this DEI, because it applies to that, too, as you know. They've got much higher status in society than folks who adhere to their biological gender. What's the college there? University of Washington. Washington. Well, that makes sense, of course. It, I got it right. Huh? It's, is it a volleyball player, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Transgender volleyball player. A male who just received a scholarship to play volleyball on the girls' team at the University of Washington. So, again, let's think about how my acronym of discrimination, exclusion, and inequity applies here. Because it does. They discriminated against a female athlete who would have gotten that spot. And they excluded that female athlete from that opportunity, which they work for. And when they start teeing it up on the court, there's your inequity. Because it ain't fair. It just isn't. This is a male that's going to be playing against girls in volleyball. Remember the incident earlier this year? Uh, I think it may have been at the high school level, where a male was playing volleyball and spiked at close range, which is what you do. And it's male to male. You pretty much can deal with that. That happens all the time. Female to female. Happens all the time. But a male spiking the ball crashed into the head of a female Knocked him unconscious. I think experienced problems, medical problems after that, right? A concussion, etc. I certainly pray and hope she's okay and can play the sport she loves again. That's equitable? That's inclusive? Unbelievable.
That's kowtowing to crazy people is what it is. And that's where it's gotten. I really do believe that. So, Instead of treating mental illness, you mollycoddle it. No doubt. Instead of helping people, you hurt them by enabling their insanity. Sometimes does it not seem that our society is upside down, uh, upended, when you think about speech as violence, but real violence is justified as free speech. Well, it shows just how circular the logic of the left is when words can be violence, but silence is also violence. That's true. That's a good point. You know that describing a male as masculine, masculinity in general, that's toxic. But we fawn all over, we glorify, we praise guys in dresses. Yeah, feminizing society has really helped us a whole lot recently. Yeah. Man, oh man. Upside down. We're going to stay on it, though. Discrimination, exclusion, and inequity. That is the new definition of DEI. Thank you, liberals, for allowing me to work on that and proclaim it. In the meantime, we got to get to this after the break. The automakers are telling Joe Biden this EV thing isn't working out very well at all. We're swallowing these things on our lots. Nobody wants them. And you're giving money to people to buy them, and they still don't want them. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Magnolia trees at night, sparkling bright. Fields of cotton love, wintry white. When it's Christmas time in New Orleans. The Crescent City's favorite son there, Louis Armstrong. Okay, so we do have an update. It appears the University of Washington has revoked the scholarship. And it was, uh, I think, largely due to just yesterday, Riley Gaines, the, of course, the swimmer we had on the program here from the University of Kentucky, who lost an NCAA swimming championship to Leah Thomas from the University of Pennsylvania, a male swimming against the females. We might ask a, we, we might add, I should say, a, uh, a a rather so-so male, at best, swimmer, right? But a champion female. Color me shocked. Well, this is what the University of Washington said (laughs) in revoking their scholarship. They said they didn't know he was a male throughout the entire recruiting process. You buying that? I'm serious. 
Sources say the coaches had no idea he is a male, that he and his family concealed his sex throughout the entire recruiting process. Right! (laughs) Sounds like that recruiting process is pretty impersonal. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm not buying it. I'm sorry. I'm not buying it. I'm just not. I would have thought they would have tried to throw the the government under the bus and say, well, Title IX won't allow us. (laughs) That's right. I'm looking... Instead of throwing their volleyball coaching staff under the bus. (laughs) I guess there's some deal cut for them to take the fall. I'm looking at a photo. It's pretty clear that this person... I mean, just the... You know, the bone structure my wife used to talk about when we were when I was coaching the kids in baseball, that there's something magical about when you start that puberty. Between 12, 13, you know, different boys experience that at different points. And she said, when you can tell us when they get the triangular face, <laughs> that was the way. You know, you, you're not, you don't have the round kind of kitty face. All of a sudden, boom, it starts, your bones start to form out. And you start, well, this person's get, clearly got a male triangular face, is what I'm saying. And uh, the Adam's apple, the neck features, and so forth, it's pretty odd. So I'm not buying that garbage. You know they wanted to do this. There's no doubt. And the, and the reason it's, and look, they may be sincere, but the reason it's hard to take them seriously is because there's so many other examples It's glamour. It's all these other feminist organizations that are championing males to receive all these various awards. They're supposed to go to women. How insane is this? This is beyond upside down. But I tell you why I think you see this sort of activity sweeping the nation, again, in every corner of society. It starts in the White House. That's where it came from. When that guy got elected, day one, as part of his instructions to the sprawling bureaucratic agency complex, as we've said, it's sex, it's climate, and it's race will be embedded, will be a core theme in all policy making. And that's just matriculated to every other aspect of society. It's just, this isn't over. You're going to see more of this. I, I guarantee you, you are. I mean, so what's the difference, right? The NCAA allows the Leah Thomases of the world to compete. The fact that they gave a scholarship to one to come compete on the, on the female team to a male. Well, what's the difference? They're not, they're not calling for Leah Thomas to go compete with the males, as he was prior, and a below-average competitor against the males, like 463 in the nation or something insane like that, and then handily beats the top-ranked female. Oh, but that's equity. Jeez, it's upside down. Unbelievable. Bill in South Mississippi wants to know... uh, if the NBA has a DEI department. I hadn't seen that yet. Have you? <laughs> oh, we can't do that, right? They may not be able to hang with the guys, the seven-footers. Sure. 
When when are those guys going to start playing with the females in the WNBA? It's upside down. It's just crazy. Totally. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're at the top of the hour. When we come back, it is Wendy Bailey, Executive Director of the Mississippi Department of Mental Health. To go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays. We are live in the Element Well studio. We appreciate you joining us today, and we welcome to the program now Wendy Bailey, Executive Director of the Mississippi Department of Mental Health. Wendy, always good to see you. Good to see you, too. Well, we were just talking off the air about the legislature convening here in two weeks from today. That's right. January 2nd. Here we come. (laughs) And this being the first year of a new term, they uh, stay in session or can for four months. That's right. Essentially. So they can leave early if they get all their business done, as we were talking about. But I think they got a lot of stuff to address coming into the new session. And, of course, we are going to have a new Speaker of the House, a returning lieutenant governor, returning governor. Uh, some new members of the House. Not a whole lot of change over there in the Senate. So what is uh, what are your priorities at the Department of Mental Health that you're going to be talking to the legislature about this year? Well, we have had so much support from the Mississippi legislature, both from the House and the Senate and the state leaders, over the last uh, three years. We really have. Uh, last year, there was some legislation, House Bill 1222, that passed, which was a comprehensive mental health bill. So we're excited to be able to share some of the results of that. It included um, adding court liaisons, which will help divert individuals from the court commitment process and get them the services they need in the community when that's possible. Uh, training law enforcement and mental health, first aid and crisis intervention team training, just giving those law enforcements another tool and their tool belt to be able to de-escalate and prevent someone from unnecessarily having to go to jail. Um, It also uh, required some reporting from Chancery Clerk, so we're really excited about some of the legislation that passed last year to be able to show the progress. But then one piece that we're really hopeful this year is 988. It's a three-digit behavioral health crisis line, so you can call 988 and you will get linked to a trained counselor here in Mississippi. It's a national line, but we have call centers in our state, and we really want to see more awareness brought to 988 um, and more people becoming aware that they can call this 24-7. So we are requesting that 988 be added to state IDs and to student IDs, college IDs, um, public school IDs to where people can have that right at their fingertips. 
So how are we doing, Wendy, just as a state with respect to the, the occurrence and the, and the incidence of, of mental health? Is, is it getting better? Is it worsening? About the same? How are we doing? We are seeing our length of wait improving. So one in four Mississippians, just like across the nation, one in four people um, have a, a mental health condition. So it's the same kind of pretty much across the nation, but one in four. So that means, you know, out of four individuals, one of your neighbors, your coworkers, your um, church members, your family members do have a mental illness. So it's really important that we bring that awareness and that attention to it. Yeah. Um, in our state, we were struggling with the number of individuals who were waiting on a state hospital bed who had been court committed. And uh, we saw a 55% decrease in that wait time um, over the last two years. So that is improving drastically. And we're also seeing an increase in people using intensive services in the community. And that is very positive because we want people to be able to stay in their community and not have to go to a higher level of care. So with these specific services that we've put in place in Mississippi, we're seeing um, a, a decrease in the number of people who are having to be readmitted. Okay. So that's positive. And these services, uh, certainly when they're where they're critical or, or reach a point of urgency, they're available around the clock, right? Yes. So around the clock is mobile crisis response teams. So you have 988 that you can call and talk to a trained counselor. But a lot of times you need someone to respond. Maybe the telephone call is not enough. You need someone to physically come out. And that's where mobile crisis response teams come in. And uh, they are across the state. Um, they're funded by the state, and then they're operating by the communal health centers, and they're available 24-7. Hmm. Are, are we kind of in line with the rest of the country with respect to this problem in our state? Are we, we greater, less than? Where do we stand? It um, it ranges on where what part of the continuum of care you're looking at. Okay. So, for example, with 988, we saw about a 20% increase in the calls this past year, and that's pretty much in line with across the nation. But we had one of the top 10 highest in-state answer rates. So where many times you might call and it may be rolled to another state, um, about 95% of the time it's going to be answered here in Mississippi. So we were well above average with our in-state answer rate. Prevalence of mental illness, we're pretty much across the board. We do have more individuals who are um, underinsured or uninsured and don't have the access to care that they need, mm -hmm. which is why making sure that we have those services available on that continuum is so important because it all comes down to access. You need the service when you need it. Yeah. What, what sort of innovations in treatment of mental health have evolved in, in the last few years. How's it, how's that changed, just the approach? So we have um, incorporated a lot of evidence-based practices, things like PACT, or Programs of Assertive Community Treatment. And that is an intensive service that's provided in the community, and it's wrapped around the individual to keep them in the community. Um, on the children and youth adolescent side, an evidence-based practice that we've started in the state the last several years is called Navigate. And it's for first episode psychosis. So the very first time that you have have been diagnosed with schizophrenia or start those signs and those symptoms, you can be connected with a Navigate team that, again, wraps those services around you. So we've really shifted our focus on evidence-based practices and best practices where there's proven outcomes mm -hmm. and then making sure that those are monitored to fidelity, that we are getting the outcomes that we need and that people are getting better 
because of the service. Gotcha. What about uh, our, our facilities in the state of Mississippi where, where we have to house um, mm-hmm. the, uh, those mental patients? How do we handle that these days? How are we looking? So we, um, we have four state hospitals, and they have 320 beds. So we have much fewer acute psychiatric beds than we had years ago, um, but we have four state hospitals. We are adding a new unit at Mississippi State Hospital for forensic services next year. Um, it will open in the late fall of next year, and that's going to help individuals who are having to wait in jail for competency restoration. Hmm. Um, so we're seeing improvements there. On the intellectual and um, developmental disability side, we have uh, regional programs that we operate across the state, and we have community homes. So we really look to focus on the individual and having them served in the least restrictive environment possible. So you have the institutional care, but then you also have the community homes. We have also added a substance use disorder unit in Mm -hmm. the last two years at East Mississippi State Hospital for people who need substance use treatment and need to be court committed. Is there any kind of data, Wendy, that uh, is available that shows just the success where, where you've taken in patients, you've treated them, you've counseled with them? and you've got them fully recovered and and they're independent. Yes, and we're very, uh, the last several years we have focused on being transparent. So showing the good and the progress, but also showing the gaps and where we need we need to focus. So we have a strategic plan for the state, and it's published on our website, and it's where you can see data related to how many people are being readmitted to a state hospital, how many people are being served in the community, mm-hmm. are those services working, and you'll see where there's areas that it's succeeding and it's above, and then there's areas where it's at risk, and we know we need to put more focus. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, what about your your finances? Do you feel like the the government, uh, the legislature, is appropriating the appropriate amount of money that the, you need? The last three years, we've had budget increases, and and we're very grateful for that. Um, we may not have gotten the amount of the increase that we asked, but uh, we are very grateful that we have not had to experience any budget cuts over the last several years. Okay. This last two years, we've even received ARPA funding to be able to enhance crisis services and some other areas. This year, we are asking for a pretty significant increase um, related really to two things, that forensic unit at Mississippi State Hospital for people who have committed a crime and need to be evaluated and restored to competency. Mm -hmm. So it's the staffing of that unit. And then people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities and making sure that they could be served in the least restrictive environment and getting them enrolled on what's called the IDDD Home and Community-Based Waiver. So that's two of our significant funding increases. Okay. Well, uh, just a few seconds left. Do you support any sort of changes in the way we handle mental patients that are being incarcerated? Is there something we need to be doing that real quick? So, yes. As um, as an alternative? That we are going to be making some recommendations this year for changes with the civil commitment process. Okay. We do not believe that anybody should be having to wait in jail who have not committed a crime. Okay. So they're waiting in jail on treatment only. We do not want to see that in our state. And that's an area of focus that I hope the legislature is really going to support this year. Yeah. Sounds like you got your plate full down there at the legislature it's, this year. It's, it's full and overflowing. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you coming in, Wendy. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We're stepping aside for a break, folks. Coming right back in the Element Well studio.
talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studio. It's middays. So, you know, the House has been dismissed up there in Washington. They're all home. The Senate staying around, trying to hammer out a deal to address the border situation. It's ridiculous. In this, um, this is rapidly becoming the top issue facing the nation. So, I, I tell you what will really get folks' attention, Rhino. Union Pacific, you know who those guys are? They're a big railroad operator. They just made a statement urging the Eagle Pass and El Paso border crossings be reopened immediately. They said Eagle Pass and El Paso represent 45% of cross-border Union Pacific business and include goods critical to the U.S. economy. I'm reading their statement. And there isn't enough capacity at our other four gateways to reroute them. And this is all to accommodate border crossings. So now it's starting to affect commerce, economic activity. This is ridiculous. It truly is. This is planned. This is intentional. If it weren't, the president would have already been there if he thought this was a critical issue facing the nation. But you know what would happen if he went? The cameras would follow. And if the cameras followed, and he's on it, and he's truly at the border where these thousands of migrants are, you'd see it. And so it'd be kind of hard if you saw that on those networks to argue that Mayorkas ain't doing his job. And it's ridiculous when he stands before the nation and says, the border is secure. It's closed. You've heard Corrine Jean-Pierre, White House Press Secretary. Oh, no, the border's closed. Or would they clean it up like they cleaned up California well, when that's he true. showed up? That's true. But it would be temporary, of course. Right? We do it for a communist dictator. We clean the place up. But for tax-paying American citizens... Well, that's Sorry. as far as a Democrat can think, is short-term. That's why everything True. they do is knee-jerk. I, it's, I agree. It, you're right. It's government by impulsiveness. It's, uh, this is a problem, no doubt about it. So the Senate is trying to get something done, but you know what the Democrats want? We're willing to give you more money, Republicans, for the border to process more. Not to secure it. Let's be clear. You look at the way the money is allocated, it's not for more law enforcement, border security, anything to stem the flow. No. It's to process more. That would just worsen the problem. It's so disingenuous. Totally disingenuous the way they present that and discuss it. And it's, uh, it's sickening. 
honestly. He wants, uh, does the president in his request, $61 billion for Ukraine, $14 for Israel, $9 billion for unspecified humanitarian aid, $13 for border management. Note the wordsmithing there, the careful selection of words. Not border security, border management, meaning we need more money to process more migrants crossing over so that we can disperse them into the country somewhere. And $7.4 billion for Indo-Pacific region, including Taiwan. Incredible. Totally incredible. So I don't know what's going to happen with respect to the Senate <clears throat> hammering something out. The House has gone home. House gets back. And they got a short few days to pass the remaining spending bills and get something done. Otherwise, you know what we're facing again, don't you? Another continuing resolution, alternatively a shutdown of the government. And now, of course, you're probably seeing Speaker of the House Mike Johnson is falling out of favor with the very people that ousted Kevin McCarthy because he's finding it virtually impossible to achieve the goals that would galvanize the conference there. It's just not possible. Already, he aggravated those who pushed McCarthy out by passing a continuing resolution that lasts now, the two-step plan that he says he was proud of because it avoided this mad rush at the end of the year, like we saw last year, to pass an omnibus bill that just got rammed through $1.7 trillion. But that's what they're facing again. So he passed a continuing resolution, but that ain't what they want. They want, and I agree with them, regular order. Let's pass 12 spending bills. The challenge is there's just not consensus on what that should look like. They did just pass the bill that authorizes the military, $886 billion. That is up over $100 billion from Trump's, I think, second year in office. And that's when, you remember, President Trump said, we got to rebuild the military. My predecessor decimated it. And he pushed for significant increase in funding of the military. The concern I think most Americans have is that you can't account for about 60% of what we already funded, Pentagon. Now you want more. Seems like that madness should stop, and that should be a requirement. Of course, you put the country at risk. You don't know. I don't think everybody knows all the possible ramifications of that. Greg and Newton says the NCAA was the main reason our flag was changed. No difference. I actually don't believe that, Greg. I, I think there was broad support for changing the flag, and the, and the feeling was that the, before the NCAA, before the George Floyd incident, I think the feeling was time's right, and let's pounce on it. Uh, I think that it uh, ends up being a positive move. And I, uh, there, there's uh, some economic development projects going on in the state right now. 
that uh, are going to be transformational, that there's no doubt in my mind would not have happened had we not made that move. And uh, I expect that to be announced in late January. But uh, I think it's going to be impressive. It's going to receive national attention, honestly. It's going to be huge. Thomas and Greenwood, House dismissed. No, I just went through that, Thomas. Did they pass all the budget bills? No, they can't. They didn't. They can't. Uh, there's no um, consensus. The votes aren't there to pass them. And if, um, and if they send it to the Senate, they ain't going to pass it anyhow. So why did the previous – oh, because of fear of talking about the – the I don't know how many bills. You say there's 100. I don't know if there was 100 bills. I don't know the number. Uh, for fear of backlash and, and I think reading the tea leaves and seeing poll after poll after poll after poll the last four or five years, it shows that Mississippians overwhelmingly support changing the flag. They felt like that was sufficient, I think. It's also pretty clear that in the recent elections and the outcome of those elections that really had minimal, if virtually no, impact. Some point to Representative Nick Bain and his stance on the flag is the reason he was ousted. I'm not sure of that. I don't think that was it. I think there were some other factors to play there. Have y'all, have y'all addressed the fact that our senators both voted to decimate our Fourth Amendment by supporting the NDAA? Well, uh, FISA reforms, what we're talking about there, uh, no, we haven't. Uh, you know, there's calls for some change there and reforms there. There's concerns about government overreach there. And I think there's such strong support for getting the military funded, I think, You've heard probably the commercials on our air, Senator Wicker talking about uh, his his rank, of course, on the Armed Services Committee and and uh, directing funding to the state for some new projects that uh, will be procured by the U.S. military by the Pentagon. So I think there was a he's he's leaning on that as a, as an accomplishment and really not talking a lot about FISA. Of course, it passed the House. I haven't seen the voting record in the House. I don't know who voted for it, against it. I want to say all the Republicans, perhaps our delegation, Rhino, voted against it, but I'll see what we find out there. We're taking a break. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio on Middays. Please stay with us. With Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi.
back in the Element Well studio. So I did a little research right now on the break here. I think I got the right bill, the right legislation, H.R. 2670, the National Defense Authorization Act, <laughs> fiscal year 2024, which was recently passed. It was a conference report. They went to conference on this thing, and, it, and the conference report did pass. It just passed the Senate December 13th, and it had previously passed the House. So according to my research, I think I got this right, all of Mississippi's delegation, both in the House and the Senate, did support the NDAA. Just wanted to pass that on. Let's see. Paul and Hernando says, concerning the budget, if your attitude is my way or the highway, then there are going to be a lot of folks left on the highway. I assume you're talking about the U.S., the federal budget there, Paul? Um, you know, it's $886 billion in the National Defense Authorization Act. That, of course, is the legislation that, that funds the U.S. Department of Defense, as the name implies. And that is up. I mean, it has been trending upward, just like all the other spending in the federal government has been for some time. And and it was honestly, it was again President Trump that really highlighted that as a as a key element of his campaign, as you recall, in 2016. He said that our military was uh, somewhat <coughs> abandoned under. His predecessor, Barack Obama, that our, our our assets were had deteriorated, declined considerably. That we needed to modernize much of our our weaponry, our facilities, and uh, just all the resources needed by the military to defend the country. Also, I should point out that. The NDAA that just passed included a 5.2% pay increase for members of the military. Let's see here. To all to all hits to the all hits all the time request line <laughs> from Gary in the Berg. He wants to hear midnight confessions from the grassroots Christmas cookies by George Strait, head first by the babies, and you wreck me. By Tom Petty. There you go. That's quite the list there. Ricky in Aberdeen says, one in four persons having a mental illness seems a little high. I thought so as well, and, and I apologize for not asking the question of, of uh, what, is, what is defined, what is construed from a clinical perspective as mental illness. And I did a little digging on the break. That one in four is consistent with the rest of the country. Uh, so it's not that Mississippi is an outlier in that regard. That does seem kind of high. And again, you may know more about that than I do, Rhino. I'm not sure what all anymore is considered mental illness. My guess is it's probably not what the average person thinks it is. It's probably way beyond that. Um, there are a lot of people struggling. I know that. There's no doubt. And a lot of times they they conceal it. You don't know simply don't know. And and then it kind of builds up and explodes. You know, there there are episodes where it kind of manifests that way. It's uh 
I mean, it's a problem. There's no doubt. I think the good news is we've gotten, we've accumulated a lot of knowledge in the treatment of mental illness through the years, and and so there are more tools available and uh, more novel approaches in treating that. Uh, I I know that that in some cases the incidence of mental illness could overwhelm our our resources and our ability to to care for those in society that need that. As uh, Wendy talked about, the I guess the vernacular now is what she say return to competency. I think is the way she described it, and that makes sense to me. So, uh, Paul and Hernando says, that is correct. I thought we were talking about the federal budget. I'm sorry, Paul. I just, just want to make sure. Um, we had had a, a previous discussion about the uh, uh, the PERS situation is the only reason. that, And we were talking to Wendy about uh, budgetary matters with respect to the Department of Mental Health and the state working on all that. So... Yeah, the federal budget, uh, again, as we've, we've discussed uh, often, is uh, on track to produce a $2.1, $2.2 trillion deficit for fiscal year 2024, which would conclude at the end of September 24. We, we're just coming off a $2 trillion deficit, which is really astonishing. It's, it's jarring when you think about the fact that the total budget is just north of $6 trillion, so a third of it is deficit spending. And that also is a concern from the perspective of inflation. Because when the government has got to go borrow money to fund the budget that it passes, it ends up printing money. A lot of people think, oh, it just goes and borrows that from China. That's absolutely not true. In fact, China has been reducing its holdings of U.S. federal debt. It's now around $800 billion of a total outstanding debt of $33 trillion. So where's all the rest of that debt? It's held by the folks in the U.S., parties in the U.S., institutions, individuals, the Federal Reserve, etc. That's where most of that debt is held. And in the case of the Federal Reserve, most of the time it essentially instructs the Treasury to go print more money, and the Treasury then borrows from the Fed. It's a crazy scenario, honestly, but that is how it works, in essence. And so the concern is when you're just boosting the money supply, that's inflationary. And as long as the government keeps spending more than it takes in, it has to go print money to meet its needs financially, then that can be inflationary. Now, the president and all of his spokespeople are running around bragging about, we've brought inflation down. No, you haven't. You've bought the rate under the you in the last year. It is true. The rate of increase in inflation has moderated, but it's still going up. That's like saying, well, I'm, uh, I'm eating less than I did last year. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm still eating more than I did last year. I got it backwards. I'm still eating more than I did last year, just not as much, and I'm getting thinner. No, that's, that's not how it works. 
<laughs> you're still indulging too much. So it's disingenuous to run around, however, touting that, oh, yeah, we brought inflation under control. Well, yeah, you have, but that doesn't mean the price of stuff is going down. And that's what they, they tend to promote. We've brought inflation down. No, you've just brought the rate of increase down. Price of stuff in going down. And there's this, I think, perception that it is, and they're trying to get people to accept that and, I guess, commend the president for it. I've always felt, from an economic perspective in particular, if you got to run around telling people how great their financial situation is, you're probably losing. Probably losing. In fact, in a recent poll, this is actually a Fox News poll, have you been helped by President Biden's economic policy? 14% say, today, I have. 16% this time last year said they had been helped. 46% said they've been hurt. That's the same as last year. 39% now say no difference, 35% last year. So the president, of course, is um, reportedly angry at his inner orbit there in the White House about his rather abysmal showing in the polls as if it's their fault. He needs to look in the mirror. It's your policy, sir. That is what has you upside down so dramatically in the polls and and now at an all-time low of 34%. 34%? Heading into an election year? I don't know that an incumbent president has ever overcome such a low approval rating and then one re-election. I, I don't see it. I really don't. 78% in another poll of Americans say the economy is in bad shape. So you can run around talking about how great Bidenomics is. Of course, now they're distancing themselves from that term. But folks ain't buying it. And that's what matters. And that's what they're going to vote, how they're going to vote. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi. So we were just talking about Joe Biden and his poll numbers. I'm looking at a, a uh, poll, a more recent poll, just conducted hypothetical head-to-head match, the current president and the former President Trump. The former President Trump is uh, leads in that poll 51 to 44, so 7%. Of course, that's a popular vote uh, situation. I mean, that's the way you poll, unless you get down to the swing states. And there have been some polls. We've talked about those. And and uh, former President Trump is leading in all the swing states. That's the really bad news, because we elect for the Biden camp, because that's how we elect presidents. So I share with the folks what you were just telling me. You did, you did a little digging on 
what constitutes uh, mental illness and why the number, the ratio of one in four may be exceedingly high. Yeah, the the one in four number is talking about 18-year-olds will experience a diagnosable, 18 years and older, will experience a diagnosable mental disorder within a year. The top two diagnosable mental disorders included in the list are anxiety and depression. Yeah. And I, Which those are pretty much representative of the human condition. It, yeah. How could anyone go through life and at not some point feel a bit anxious and even depressed? That's almost impossible. I think that's just the way humans are wired. Now, I'm sure there's a distinction, however, between the average person who experiences that and someone who's just got, I, I don't know, some sort of constant issue with that such that it renders them dysfunctional just uh, you know unable to function or worse hostile and a threat that that's where it's a big problem i mean if it's just hey i'm just depressed or i'm anxious about something which we all feel a lot that's just life i guess the old Quip, get over it, sort of applies there. Um, and I, I still kind of attribute this to the concept I've talked about before of incumbency. We are we're so used to just having the, the essentials of life to most of us, a large majority of us, just there and available. I mean, I, I think about other parts of the world, well, that's not the case. I mean, they literally are struggling to eat, to subsist, for shelter. I mean, just the absolute minimum essentials of life. Whereas in this country, even those that are struggling to attain that, I just don't think are looking hard enough. You know, a lot of the folks that out on the streets, the homeless population, you, they've been interviewed, and I'm not. I'm not trying to paint this with a broad brush. It doesn't apply to everyone. A lot of them just want it that way. You've seen that. This is, I'm not making this up. Um, but it's not as if they're not lots of resources available to even them. And I just wonder how much of that's been exacerbated by this wide-open border. It just seems like that's connected to me. And I could be wrong. I'm not saying that everybody that's out on the streets in tents, uh, you know, especially around the, the, the big cities, is an immigrant. I'm just saying I wonder if there's been so much focus and so much resource directed at at those folks that aren't even citizens here that... Maybe to some extent we've abandoned. At a minimum, we've uh, once again we've lo- almost lauded it. We've glorified it. We've welcomed it. It was proven in San Francisco. No, you really could change the way that manifest when we got a dictator coming over. As you said, we clean the streets up. So I don't know. Paul and Meridian makes a great point on the ceasefire text line. Everyday food that's available to us in restaurants would have been reserved for kings and queens just a century ago. Absolutely true, Paul. Uh, I totally agree. And I, um, there's so many things we take for granted, and it's fine because of our incumbency, 
But I always think about you know my business years where there are problems and then there are real problems. You know, and and I used to <laughs> used to laugh with the staff and say, "No, that's not a problem. That's an opportunity. That's what we get paid to do: solve problems." A real problem is you can't make payroll. That's a real problem. You can't service debt if you have it. You don't have enough sales to cover expenses. That's a real problem. Perspective is important, is it not? I think it is. And again, the, Paul is so right. Um, even our, and, and this is true just in the last 50, 60 years. Even our most impoverished population today is way better off than a lot of the more affluent in some other nations. And by affluent, I mean just higher up on the economic scale there. It's absolutely true. If you live in Mississippi, you're better off economically than anybody living in the U.K. That's true. Good Put point. it in perspective. Yeah. Time for a break. Fox News, Super Talk News, coming back with the afternoon portion of Middays. And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's midday. Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Wealth Studio. The afternoon portion is with you now. By the way, a Mississippi Christmas with Steve Azar gets started, uh, as is a tradition here at Super Talk on Christmas Eve, 1224 at 1 p.m. Santa will be working around the clock this Christmas, and he'll be listening to Super Talk. The Mississippi Christmas with Steve Azar returns here on Super Talk Mississippi starting Christmas Eve at 1 p.m. Steve will play hours and hours of Christmas classics, tunes from Mississippi artists, and even a couple of holiday tunes on his guitar. A Mississippi Christmas with Steve Azar is brought to you by the Farm Families of Mississippi. Always look forward to that. Our good friend Steve Azar. Well, Brandon from Corinth makes a point. It's almost like as we advance as a society, we discover more things about mental and physical health conditions. It's hard to say, Brandon, if it's attributed to more tools to discover, or as Rhino points out, maybe we've kind of expanded the definition. And, you know, a lot of this is just what a person conveys. I don't know that there are any specific clinical tests to determine if someone is depressed or anxious. I'm not sure. That's over my pay grade there. Uh, But I suspect if you just reported such, you might get diagnosed and included in those statistics. But that we shouldn't let that, however, detract from the fact that there there are mental folks with significant mental illness that do need help. And it sometimes can be a risk to society. That's, there's no doubt about that. 
How could you not think that or conclude rationally that these people that go out and play shoot 'em up, um, mass shootings, schools, public places, surely you'd have to characterize those people as mentally ill, mentally incompetent. I don't see how you, you couldn't. That just seems to go against the grain of mental stability. And I'm not saying they weren't. We've discovered, we've learned subsequent to those events, have we not, that they had been treated, or at least there were signs visible and nobody said anything about it. Next thing you know, they go into a school with a dang gun and start shooting kids. Now, it doesn't happen every day, but in cases where we've seen this, seems like you could almost always go back and point. Uh, isn't there some study or studies, uh, Rhino, where those that, that, um, that commit serial murders have maybe had a history when they were young of, of um, uh, just being harmful, brutally harmful to, to animals? Yeah. I mean, it's like a, almost a, an indicator. If there's some nut out there that's decapitating dogs and cats and abusing them physically, that they could likely manifest as a, a serial murder of humans at some point. I mean, wasn't that true with Jeffrey Dahmer, for yeah, example? Yeah, because, I mean, think about it this way. Whatever is misfiring in their brain to make them want to commit these heinous acts against animals eventually won't be satiated by committing those acts against animals, and they have to up their game. Uh, okay, makes sense. So, Which means they then move on to people. So being cruel to an animal is just kind of wetting your appetite for what's likely to come. But folks ignore that often. Maybe they don't know, but it, it, I think there have been some cases where, yeah, we knew that, but just didn't think anything of it sort of deal. And then the next thing you know, they're doing that same sort of, committing those same sort of heinous acts on human beings, uh, which is certainly a problem. So what else we got here? Uh, but I, I hear you, uh, Brandon. It, it makes sense to some extent. I, I still kind of think that maybe uh, dovetails in with my opinion that this incumbency thing is, is um, kind of pervasive in society. Paul, I mean, made a great point of that. We our average diet today is one that only kings and queens could experience. Well, we're also only uh, what hundred, hundred and fifty at most years into an era where the average person has more free time than they ever would have. Yeah, before then. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely With true. With the Industrial Revolution and then the Computer Revolution, yeah. you, you're seeing more time available to the average person to worry about their, quote-unquote, mental health. Yeah. And that's, um, I think that's that's proven out uh, quite, a, quite a bit in, in just the productivity gains in society, just overall wealth of society. I mean, the fact that we do have this abundance of food. Back in the 30s, I remember studying this in economics class. Like a third of our country, we had a population of about 140 million, I think, was involved in the agriculture industry. And we had struggled feeding our population. Now it's less than 3%. And we produce more than we could consume in this country. We essentially still feed much of the world. 
And that's a function of incredible innovation that has been introduced into agriculture. Gosh, you know, that when we get the John Deere folk, folks on the program, the Ag Up friends, and you see some of that equipment, just as an example, that's just one little example of how advances in, in technology have uh, been implemented, inserted into agriculture at all phases of operations. I mean, gosh, the, uh, Mississippi State, with incredible extension service, the research they've done to improve yields. I mean, so I'm digressing a bit, but the fact is, innovation and human innovation has positively affected all aspects of life. And the most fundamental necessity of life is food, water. Certainly, it's had a major impact on that. And there's really only one economic system that engenders growth like that. Correct. That's capitalism. Why the fools in other parts of the world and fools here as well, unfortunately, don't seem to get that. Incredible. Almost all these nations that have adopted socialism or communism, they still struggle to feed their population. There's no doubt about that. Still. Incredible. So what was uh, one of those dictators came over a couple of decades ago, it seems like, and was astonished at the selections in the grocery stores, in an average grocery store in this country? Of course, Bernie. Boris Yeltsin. That's right. Okay. From was Russia. In the late 80s, he went to Clear Lake Grocery Store in Texas. Okay. And Bernie Sanders, of course, he's, he's the one who said we got... Excuse me, Randall's Grocery Store in the Clear Lake area. Said so we got too many choices. We don't need all these choices, right? <laughs> He's the same guy that says we need more competition. We got too much concentration. I mean, there's there's so many conflicts in those viewpoints and that philosophy. You, you you can't reconcile it, honestly. One problem on the ceasefire text line. One problem with the formula regarding Biden's poll numbers is that people may disapprove of his job on the economy, but those same so. Pardon me, same people won't find it important enough to vote at all this time around. Well, if it's this, I think it's fair to say that people that that vote in presidential elections, they they typically do it uh, routinely, repeatedly. I mean, they're they're just some people that are more inclined to vote than others. Uh, certainly, the expansion of voting that we saw in the last cycle to include mail-in voting because of COVID. There's no doubt. I read an article about that yesterday of how much that exploded. No secret there. Of course, that opens up the possibility of, of voter fraud. No doubt about it. It's just, it's just more difficult. There's just more processes, more opportunity for fraud, for error. Um, but I don't... I, I think in this case... The poll numbers are indicative of what would be the outcome. I truly believe that. I think it's just obvious that that's Mr. Biden is facing an uphill battle. Now, he's mad at his staff, and he's taking it out on them. Uh, there are lots of reports about that, which is obviously ridiculous, because I think he's not being honest about the problems he has created for himself. But he's uh, 
I've heard reports before. You don't, you know, it doesn't get out in the public a lot about. He's not a real nice guy to to his staff and to uh, others around him. And as a result, um, he's just not willing to accept the music that. No, this is your own fault here. Look in the mirror here, dude. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Did you ever see the faces of the children? They get so excited. Waking up on Christmas morning hours before the winter sun's ignited. Maybe the evening dreams and all they mean, including heaven's generosity. Welcome back. It's middays. We're in the afternoon portion of the program. So on the ceasefire text line, same person says, in other words, the 2024 election will be won by the candidate who can do the best job at getting the most people to the polls. It won't be won on policies. Well, yeah, the person who gets the most uh, votes wins, but of course it's uh, based on the Electoral College. Those are awarded at the state level, so one could still win the presidency and lose the popular vote. That's what happened in 2016 when Donald Trump won the presidency. So, I mean, I'm not sure what the purpose of the statement is. It's absolutely true, but here's the thing. Well, when you tie it into the previous statement that folks may disapprove of Biden, but that's not enough to get them to the polls. I see. Um, okay, well, I guess the question is, what would motivate someone to go to the polls? I mean, I think that's the fundamental question, and that, of course, is the the challenge for campaign managers and consultants. I absolutely agree that you you got to get people that you feel like would vote for you to go vote for you. No doubt, cast a ballot. So the question is, how do you how do you do that? I would argue it's it is based on policy positions and among other things but in general uh, that's what would inspire people to go cast a ballot so i would i would say that the, the two are linked i don't i don't think you can just separate them and and segregate them so cleanly like that i'm i'm saying just getting people to polls and policy positions Let's see. Tim from Tupelo, back in high school, 1984, we had guns in our trucks at school because we were going hunting after school. The difference is our dad and granddad showed us how to respect the weapon and how to handle it, mainly not to kill people with it. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, I think the key word there, Tim, is, is dads and granddads 
they ain't, they're missing in action. That's the fundamental problem. I know Gary and the Berg has strong feelings about this, and I agree with him as well. It's the dissolution of the nuclear family is, I think, the root cause of all of our core problems. I don't see how that could be denied. And once again, because up is down and down is up in leftist world, where there is absolutely no consensus on what is good, bad, right, wrong, pass, fail, can't agree on male, female, that they don't seem to be willing to condemn this trend of the dissolving family. They don't seem to be on board with upholding and supporting the value of a traditional nuclear family. And that's certainly not to say that children cannot be raised by uh, a single parent or a caretaker or caretakers and, and still grow up to succeed and thrive. Absolutely. The odds are against them, however, statistically. So I hear you, Tim. What, what, there's no dads and granddads. In fact, sadly, the dads and granddads are probably, in many cases, engaged in the same sort of illegal activity that, that just gets passed on to their offspring, especially with guns. Who's in the GOP running to take Manchin's Senate seat? That's a question this person says off-topic on the ceasefire tax line. Well, it's, it's the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, who is a Republican. Not he would, he would face Joe Manchin were he running for re-election, but I believe he's already announced he's not running as a Democrat in the state of West Virginia to retain his seat in the Senate. Right now, it looks like that seat again, in, in accordance with the polls, is going to flip Republican. And we're going to see uh, a Republican represent West Virginia in the Senate. Now, I don't know that that means a whole lot in terms of voting, because Joe Manchin was kind of one of these squishy middle guys that could go either way. And the, the main thing he did, honestly, I don't think we'll ever know, how critical it was and how valuable it was to this country was he stood in the way of tearing down the, the filibuster. It had uh, he, he joined the Democrats in voting to repeal that rule in the Senate, which would have then paved the way for major legislation to pass on a simple majority in the Senate. There's a lot of stuff that would have passed. Uh, massive tax reform, Increases, abortion would be um, codified into law. Unbelievable federalization of the election process. Likely would have seen D.C. join the nation as a state, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's incredible to think about how close we were to all that happening, and. It was Joe Manchin kind of, at that time, was the most powerful member of the whole Senate because he could stem the tide. Now, once the House flipped in 22 in the midterm, all bets were off. It wouldn't matter what would happen in the Senate because you couldn't get that sort of stuff through the House, Republican-controlled House. But it's, it's always that 
that first term, that first two years, if you got a president and a house of the same party and a Senate, you got the trifecta. That's what happened in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected, and that's essentially what led to uh, the Affordable Care Act, his signature legislation, being passed. So, yeah, we were talking about Joe Biden, who is just upset about his poll numbers, and he's blaming it <laughs> um, on his aides. You know, he's telling them that, that they're the problem, which is really crazy, and not, again, looking in the mirror for the core problem. He, he just refuses to accept that, that it's his policies, and he's, and he's, he's saying things uh, related, like, to the economy. When he's talking to his aides, this is being reported, that he's saying, hey, look, you know, we got this low unemployment, which is true, but that wasn't a problem before he took office, were it not for the forced shutdowns of the economy by the government. And then they just sent everybody money. So it really, really wasn't like they felt the pain of unemployment when you're dropping money out of helicopters to offset loss of income. So nobody can really relate to that. It's not like, oh yeah, during the Trump administration I didn't have a job. Now I got one because of Joe Biden. So that's that's hanging your hat on an, uh, an issue that is honestly not a factor. And he says that the economy's growing. Of course, now they're pointing to the stock market. No doubt. November, great month for the market. Guess who's benefiting the most, of course? The very people that they blast all the time, the wealthy. That's not to say that there are people who are not necessarily wealthy who benefit as well. Virtually everybody that's got a 401k plan or any investments, they've also benefited, no doubt. The people that have more invested, which would, would typically be those at the higher end of the wealth spectrum, they've benefited more because they have more invested. It's the same thing with the argument about any kind of tax decreases. Well, the wealthy got all the tax benefit of that, all the benefit of that, well, because they paid more. When you didn't pay any to start with, it's kind of hard to receive a benefit. That, that little math reality always seems to be absent from that argument. So it's being reported that the president and, first, and the first lady meet regularly with their senior team for updates and reviewing plans, and he's, again, holding his team responsible for his dismal poll numbers. I don't believe that is the case whatsoever. I think he is he is personally responsible for that, not his team, which is kind of crazy. Uh, Donald Trump, as well, utilized some rhetoric in a rally over the weekend regarding immigrants that is incensed folks on the left in particular. I, I would say it was a poor choice of words, but I think a much bigger deal is being made of it than uh, it really is. And I certainly uh, get the president's point that he was uh, attempting to make, and I think he's right. I just think it maybe could have been described a little, little more eloquently, and that's fine. We're coming right back with half an hour left on Middays in the Element Well studio. He will bring on this Christmas day. 
will bring on this Christmas day. We interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Rhino keeping us entertained in the spirit. Heaping helping of Christmas music. Appreciate that. Rhino, we're in the Element Well studio. Thomas is 75 on the Supreme Court. This also on the ceasefire text line. Alito is 74, give or take. An opening could be there in the next five years, presidential term, just trying to think ahead. Yeah. And that's in, in reference to Joe Manchin uh, and what's going to happen with that seat there. And it, uh, I think at this point it looks like it's in pretty good shape to flip Republican and be held by the very popular governor, Jim Justice, of the great state of West Virginia. Michael and Brooke Haven says Biden will get 70 million votes just because. Yeah, because he's a Democrat. That's really not hard to achieve, uh, Michael, when you think about the deep blue states and and, uh, how densely populated there are. Uh, Republican candidate for president, based on the electoral college, is honestly playing catch-up from the get-go, because you can just go ahead and mark down the uh, the big blue states, which come with uh, a large chunk of electoral votes in their column before they ever cast a ballot. California and New York to start with, you're almost a third there. When you add in Illinois, you're a third of the number of electoral votes required to win the presidency. That's why it all comes down to a handful of states. Uh, and then you got several, such as here in the South and Southeast, that don't have as many electoral votes as these big blue states, the coastal states. And they sort of offset that, and that's why it really comes down to those five, six, depending on who's analyzing, uh, so-called swing states. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, now Georgia, uh, Arizona, sometimes North Carolina, all figure in. And and the difference comes down to... Uh, 100,000 votes across those states. Amazingly that it works out that way. But it but it does. Let's see. Um, looking on the ceasefire text line. Side note, Trump started the stimulus and had planned to give the same stimulus if he had won, so he dropped money out of the helicopter as well. I have um, expressed uh, my discontent with this uh, option of shutting the economy down and uh, plowing all this money into it in the Paycheck Protection Program, supplemental enhanced unemployment benefits, stimulus checks, all the like, enhanced Medicaid reimbursement, a ton of money 
that went to the healthcare industry, the states, the cities, all of which happened in 2020, President Trump's last term. I think he did that on advice from his inner circle who said, we got to do this, and this thing is, this COVID thing is, is real, and it puts the nation's health at incredible risk, and it poses a, a, a dilemma to our health care providers. All that's true. And, and uh, we've recognized that on the program. So it's, it, I think this is another left-leaning person here, perhaps, Rhino. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. that, it, that is, you know, they, If they the, listened half as much as they blathered, they would have already heard you talk about that. Yeah. I mean, so I, I've been consistent. What I have said, however, is that, you know, maybe you started a little fire there in 2020. Then you come along when Joe Biden got elected. And by the way, I don't remember Donald Trump when he was running in 2020 saying, I don't remember whatsoever him saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pass an American rescue plan, which was Joe Biden's creation. I don't remember that at all. In fact, what I remember him saying is, hey, look, we, uh, we're on the path back, remember, right at the end of 2020. And he was right. And he foresaw the... You remember the V-shaped recovery, all his inner circle of economists and himself. He was promoting that on the campaign trail. Just stay out of the way. The country is resilient. We're going we're gonna to reopen it. We're already starting that. And we were kind of over the worst of it at that point. All that's absolutely true. I, I don't for one minute think he would have enacted further stimulus. I just don't. I think his advisors would have said it's not needed, and here's the risk, Mr. President. Inflation. That's what we got. And so maybe he started the fire a bit with uh, that legislation. There's two major bills that passed, and then a, a third one right before he exited offices. But the two major ones were in March of 2020. That included the CARES Act. That was the big one, $2.1 trillion. But Joe Biden was bound and determined, hell-bent, to try to do something that would be popular in the short term and make it look like his policy, specifically, was responsible for a pending recovery. And the opposite happened. Despite warnings, the opposite happened. We got inflation, which at first they all described as transitory, including the 400 damn Ph.D. economists that work there in the government. Oh, it's transitory. Settle down, folks. His treasurer, the person who would be at the top of the list of those responsible for such policies and their impact, the Fed chairman, it was ridiculous. Then all of a sudden, it started creeping and creeping and creeping and got worse. So essentially, we had a little fire there that was starting to smolder and stabilize, and all of a sudden Joe Biden gets elected and he douses it with gas in the form of the American Rescue Plan. And the flames bloomed up. That's what happened. That's just fact. So I can disagree with the policy of 2020, but at the time, honestly, I'm not sure anybody thought that it was the wrong policy. It passed. By the way, the Democrats never want to take any responsibility. They all voted for it, too. They all voted for those policies. Well, responsibility is like kryptonite to a Democrat. <laughs> well, 
They're pretty, in any shape, form, or fashion. Well, is it like selective responsibility? We're only responsible when things go right and are good. Heap all the praise on me for that. But when things ain't good, oh, I had nothing to do with it. It's Donald Trump. That's like the default. What's well, just wrong? Totally wrong. So, and I, I'll tell you, I don't think for a minute the president wanted to do that. I think he was pushed into doing it. And again, it required his signature is what I'm saying. Now, you could say based on the numbers, it was, it was veto-proof because like two people in the House voted against it. I think every senator voted for it as well. It just looked like the right thing to do at the time. We don't know. We didn't know then what we know today. Now, I'm certainly fine with laying a lot of blame at the feet of Anthony Fauci, who was just vacillated so much on the issue. And now we know a lot more about this guy and him honestly being a fraud, I think, and more concerned and more interested in personal fame and notoriety than truly protecting the health of the nation. And if this thing goes away, he ain't on TV every day. I mean, I really do think that was at play. And unfortunately, the president, and of course, when you're sitting in the White House, you want to believe these people that are in your orbit, your, your closest advisors. You want to believe them. I think Donald Trump's gut told him it's really in the right thing to do, but I, I feel compelled to do it, and I, and I don't know that I could stop it. But in retrospect, we now see that, yeah, that was probably largely unnecessary. Certainly didn't require the extent and degree that uh, it was implemented. I think everybody out there knows somebody that got, say, for example, PPP loans that never missed a beat in their business, yet they got forgivable loans, helicopter money from the government. People got all kinds of crazy unemployment benefits they didn't really need. You can just go down the list. So I'm just responding to this person who is, of course, trying to trying to play the old uh, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if kind of, you know, or actually what about, what about, what about, what about, what about. So, well, crazy. this person is usually perpetually aggrieved and terminally ignorant. <laughs> I. It seems like that is maybe uh, prevalent within... Uh, That's the uniform for the liberal voter. <laughs> I get it. It sure seems like it. We're stepping aside uh, for a break here on Middays. we got the final segment on this Tuesday coming up next. Stay with us. Beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. 
All right, you chipmunks. Ready to sing your song? I'll say it, Don. Yeah, let's sing it now. Okay, Simon? Okay. Okay, Theodore? Okay. Okay, Alvin? Alvin? Thomas and Greenwood says we should shut the government down. It wasn't that bad when it happened under Trump. It did. That is absolutely true. December 22nd, 2018 through January 25th, 2019, the longest in history. It achieved nothing. And it wouldn't achieve anything today. I mean, I I know a lot of people would just say would be happy if we shut it down. I'd be happy to shut down if it achieved some positive outcome. It's not going to... Okay, Tom says we get a budget out of it. We're about to pass a budget. Twelve spending bills. And I've said it before, need to say it again. We still cannot, do not, will not touch the 70% of spending that's driving the deficits and the debt. You're just... You're literally just nibbling barely at the edges dealing with this discretionary spending, which is what all the chaos and controversy involves. It just it's just not we could we could eliminate it all. Spend, I've said it before. Zero. No defense. The sprawling agency complex, give them no money. No Department of Justice, no FBI, no EPA, no Homeland Security, no Center for Medicaid and Medicare. No Department of State, no Interior. Just go down the list. Eliminate it all. Zero money. Zero money for the Department of Defense. Still produce a $600 billion deficit. That's in line with the deficit produced in Donald Trump's first year. That's without a military, without all these other agency complex. We're not serious about addressing our budgetary woes until we start talking about mandatory spending. And the mere mention of it draws the ire and puts one in serious political peril if they intend to run again. Just a mere utterance of any words concerning those programs. By the way, I did look at uh, PERS. I couldn't remember the data. I think I actually had it included in my uh, article. The question was asked about the 13th check, cost of living adjustment. Most of those are paid as a single lump sum check. It's optional, but most retirees do receive their cost of living adjustment in December as a single payment. And when you look at um, the total benefits paid in uh, 2022, I don't expect 2023 is a whole lot different. That was uh, 
121 million bucks is what I'm looking at. And the that's excluding the cost of living adjustment. The cost of living adjustment was uh, 85. So the uh, the the numbers is a pretty big one. So hold on a sec. Let me look at that again. I think I may have read the chart wrong here. Think that is in thousands. So I believe that's one. Yeah, I think it's one uh, billion. Is what it was. So it's a bunch of money, but it it kind of works out to be about two thirds and a third. Just doing the math real quick. There is the way kind of works out. The number of retirees now 114,000 total in the state of Mississippi. So I'll make sure I get this this uh, this data correct to you tomorrow. Just want to make sure before we just do this kind of on the fly. But it's a it's a big expense, of course. The cost of living adjustment is as well, and the program is supposed to contemplate all that. Doesn't always do so. And uh, that's kind of why we're looking at trouble these days. Wow. A a $31, $32 billion portfolio. Yeah. Big one. Got to do better. Well, we're out of here today. We're out of time. We appreciate you so much for joining us. We'll be back with you again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Mississippi Media Production.